Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Welcome back to Point of Origin, the podcast about the world of food from around the world. I'm your host, Whetstone Magazine co-founder, Stephen Satterfield. Today marks our seventh episode to date. Can you believe it? And so far, we've started each episode by getting right into the story because these episodes are dense and there's a lot of ground to cover. But before we do so today, we have a request. That is, if you're listening to this, there's a chance that you have enjoyed the podcast thus far. And if that is the case, you may likely know this, but when you give the show a good ranking and review, it dramatically helps our position on the app making our work more easily discoverable and our stakeholders like our friends at iHeartRadio and our advertisers a lot more excited about supporting us and a lot more inclined to do so. So if you wouldn't mind and you haven't yet, please give us a five-star review. Okay, now on to today's show. You know, when we think about food origins, often we think about the movement of people, plants, animals, and ideas. But the study of humans would be an incomplete one without the study of clay and ceramic vessels, one of humankind's earliest and most important inventions. These fragments of earth, when listened to attentively, are clues to the past. What is the type or quality of material used? What was the technology? Was it more like a sculpture or formed on a wheel? What can these fragments and particles tell us about its uses? If pottery is a conversation with the past, archaeologists are our interpreters. Today, we're talking to a whisperer of ancient history, culinary archaeologist Geraldine Morrison. Geraldine has a PhD in archaeology specializing in the ancient cooking vessels of Crete. And after we talk to Geraldine, we will be talking to Naoko Take more about the miracle of Donabe, the ceramic pot that is one of the oldest in Japan. Naoko is a food and drink expert. She is also the author of the fantastic Donabe cookbook an owner of Toro Kitchen in Los Angeles, a purveyor of fine Japanese ceramic cookware. But first up, we go to the dungeons of Crete, Greece to talk Bronze Age ceramics with Gerilyn Morrison. Yeah, I mean, I just recently took the title of culinary archaeologist for this one hotel that I'm working at. I mean, because they, that, 
that's the title right there. Okay, there we go. Because they kept calling me an archaeologist. But here in Greece, that means that you're excavating on the property to, so that people can build. Right. And I was like, no, guys, you guys can't call me that. Everyone's confusing the whole thing. So, <laughs> like, you know. So, yeah, so we came up with that to be more specific, you know, for when I was there doing presentations. And I think it worked pretty well. I think so, too. So that's what we'll say and in enviable or aspirational job title for sure. So good job. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it sounds a little overinflated sometimes, but you know. No, it's right it's on target okay. for you. Welcome to Point of Origin. Today we are talking pottery, both in traditions and in cooking methodologies. And we are very excited to have with us on the line from Crete and Greece, Gerilyn Morrison, who is a culinary archaeologist who will be talking to us about among other things, some of the pottery traditions in Crete. Thank you so much for joining us today on Point of Origin. So, Gerilyn, you were kind of fixating on this title that you have of culinary archaeologist, but it is in some ways a descriptive term for the work you do. But can you tell us in your own words what kind of work you do and how you how you think about the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Basically, what I do is um, I have a very strong art background, particularly in the ceramic arts and pottery. And I use that in conjunction with a lot of other research in anthropology and archaeology to talk about ancient cooking practices and food in Aegean Bronze Age in particular. And so that encompasses Crete, all the neighboring islands, a little bit of uh, Anatolia and the Greek mainland. I use a variety of different types of sources to kind of look about what people were eating, how they were cooking, and then kind of why to try to put that into some sort of anthropological context to kind of talk about basically what people were doing every day in the world, back in the day, back in the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. Well, in whetstone parlance, we would call you an origin forager. So we can... (laughs) And what is it about this region, the Aegean, that garnered your attention? Yeah, I kind of came here serendipitously. I was down, originally down in uh, the Americas, down in Guatemala and Mexico for several years in the late 90s. And there was a civil war going on and it was really quite too dangerous to be there anymore. And I uh, had phoned a friend of mine who was an archeologist in Crete, Jennifer Moody, and she kept saying, you know, you just have to come over here and just experience it. And I said, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. So I did and I really just fell in love with it. And I think, you know, the moment I stepped off the plane, I really felt at home. And, you know, since then I feel like you know, it's a world of a, of a lot of contrast. You know, the landscape is very contrasting with like the stark mountains and the sea. You know, you're in a lot of, you know, the geopolitical area over here is super rich. It's old. You know, the whole origins between the Near East and Europe and then Western civilization is here. So, you know, the whole scope is just really different than what I grew up with. And I just, I really love that. Mm-hmm. And your specialty is Minoan civilization. Can you say a little bit more about how Minoan culture plays into your work? That's kind of a time period that's super dramatic because we have the Theron eruption, which has happened. There's a lot of trading going on. The Minoan civilization is rebuilding. There's a lot of different ideas about what's happening with, with the economy, what's happening with the political structure between the old palaces and the new palaces, you know, plus a lot of different influences from the Greek mainland, from the Mycenaean culture. So, you know, most of the time what we do in archaeology and in history is we study these big topics like warfare or trade or, you know, mass migration. And what's nice about cooking and about food is that you can kind of study the household level. And so that's what I'm most interested in. And then once you can look at that, you can kind of branch out because, of course, food is also influencing farming and trading. And sometimes you also see movements of people in that. Absolutely. Yeah, we so often say that the the study of food is really the study of the movement of, of people and plants. So the migration aspect is super resonant with us as well. From a more macro view, Crete is its own 
an island into itself for people who have not been to Greece or are not clear on the distinction between Crete and the mainland. Greece, can you say more about kind of culturally and geographically what some of those differences are? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Crete is a very special island, even in the Aegean, because if you can imagine, for those in the United States, like the perimeter is about the size of Long Island. So it's not very long. You can drive east to west in about five and a half hours and about the thinnest point where I live. And it's only 15, 20 minute drive to the north coast from the south coast. And then the longest it can take you to get across is about two hours. But what's interesting is the topography is unbelievable because there's about three to four large mountain mastiffs, which just create this microclimates and all sorts of variants between the east and the west side of the mountains. So the west side of Crete is really interesting because it's the coolest, it's the wettest side. And basically what happens is the rain will come across the Mediterranean and it starts dumping the water there. So, you know, as the mountains kind of trap it in, it dumps the water, it moves across the island and it continues to dump the water until it gets to the far east end. And then there, there's very little rain left. So the east end is much drier, it's much hotter. And also, Crete is kind of, you know, latitudinally, it's not straight across the globe. It's kind of angled. So the east side is much farther south than the west side. And so it's still much hotter down here. And it's tropical. It's the only tropical zone in Europe as well. Hmm. So even climactically across this little tiny space of the island, you have a huge variation and a lot of many microclimates. So the food can be slightly different. The seasons, you know, the seasonal temperatures within the season can be slightly different. And then, of course, between the high mountain plateaus and the seacoast, you know, you get, you know, snow. And oftentimes, you know, when the snow comes, those mountain peaks are covered for about three, four months out of the year. So there's quite a variety here on the island. It's also extremely green. So really, even though people like to come here in the summer, if you want to experience the food culture and if you want to experience some really awesome hikes, the best time to come is after the rains start when we kind of have what they call a second spring. And that's when all the wild greens start growing, the wild mushrooms start coming out, the snails come alive. So everybody's out foraging, everybody's like collecting what they want to eat, collecting what they want to do. And then of course, year round, we have a variety of different kinds of like food production processes going on. So, you know, during this time, there's a lot of foraging, there's raki making, wine production's already going in, and then people are starting to get ready for, for cheese and milk production in the spring. So, you know, it's extremely rich compared to other islands, which typically don't have so much areas for crops. And then, you know, just the, the variety of the different types of mountains and then the elevation here just makes it, you know, you have more accessibility to more stuff, <laughs> basically. Wow. What yeah. an utter dream. It sounds like quite a paradise. Let's talk a little bit more about your area of focus, which is in pottery. You came to this work before you were a scholar as an artist. What can you tell us about the the traditions in pottery in this region? They have a very, very, very long tradition here in the Aegean with pottery production. The Neolithic culture that was here before the Minoans also produced pottery. Crete, because of its geology, has a lot of different types of clay outcrops or clay exposures across the island. So you can make a wide range of vessels. You can make a lot of different types of fine wares that can be painted very delicately, or you can make big courseware vessels like their storage jars or their cooking pots. So you really have a wide range of like potting materials to deal with. And that's true for a lot of places here in the Aegean and particularly in Greece. And, you know, they're craftsmen and women above all. So, you know, making pottery was very much like second nature to a lot of people. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome back to Point of Origin. I'm interested in the material part of the research because mostly when we think about vessels for whetstone, it's through a specific culinary or gastronomic lens. But what you're referring to is actually the origins, right? The raw material. So can you say more about that? That's right. So one of the things I'm really interested in, both as a potter and as an archaeologist, looking into kind of the origins of like the Bronze Age uh, vessels, and in particular the cooking pots, is kind of what types of clays the Minoan potters were using and what kind of properties they had maybe compared to the other types of vessels. So, you know, we know through ethnography and and also talking to modern-day potters is that, you know, there's a lot of different clay sources on the island. Sometimes the modern-day potters don't even use the clay sources anymore and they use, like, industrial clays. But about 50, 60 years ago, they used all these local resources. And so you can see a lot of the, you know, the natural clays just kind of outcropped and exposed everywhere, particularly like in the road cut, because they're making a lot of new roads on the island. So that's kind of convenient for us mm-hmm. um, that are looking for raw clays. And then in the riverbeds, of course, that's like one of the more traditional places to start looking for raw clays. And so... At the site that I work at called Maklas Excavations here on East Street, it's directed by Jeffrey Souls and Christus Tavares. And here we actually have a Bronze Age artisan quarters where we know there was potters there making pottery out of the local clay. And I've been extremely fortunate to work with a wonderful team that has been looking at the different clay sources and looking at the pottery for years. And so one of my roles on the project was to come in and in particular look at the cooking pots to see, you know, what does the cooking pot clay look like, what do these forms look like, and then try to go out into the landscape near the artisan quarters here at this site and try to locate it, work it up, make make the cooking vessels themselves, and then basically start from scratch and then end up with a cooking pot that's viable that you can cook in. So, mm-hmm. so the, the cool thing is that you find out about these material properties with the Cretan clay is that oftentimes the cooking vessels in the Bronze Age didn't really appear to have any distinction between those that they were making large storage jars out of or water jugs out of, just all made out of this kind of courseware clay. There's a rock called phyllite, so it's metamorphic rock, which is really common here in the local geology. And they just kept it in, in the clay as they mixed it up. 
and that seemed to give it enough thermal shock resistance or aided in the heating and cooling of the cooking pot to allow it to be cooking. So that's, that's one of the main things that I do when I'm looking at material sources and trying to look at forms of forms of different types of vessels, particularly in terms of like the history of like of culinary study here on the island. And did you notice over centuries stylistic or design changes or functional changes in the type of vessels that were being used for culinary purposes? Yeah, that's an interesting question. In the Minoan stayed around for you know, several thousand years. And basically, the kind of the iconic vessel was like this big pot with three legs. And it's really perfect for like boiling and simmering food. And what you find in the change of the actual vessel, either at this particular site or at other sites, is like maybe the upper body will change a little bit. So instead of having an incurving rim, you'll have a rim that, that turns outward. So maybe, you know, when you put a lid on it, you lid on it in a different kind of way, but it would still be a lidded vessel. There are other types of newer types of vessels that come in that tend to be also a cooking pot with three legs, but instead of having it closed, you know, it would be completely open. So it looked like in that situation, whatever you're preparing in that kind of vessel, you'd want the whatever liquid would inside of the vessel to kind of evaporate a little bit quicker or a little bit more easy. And you have to think about these vessels too, not just as cooking pots, but they're also found in industrial areas. So they could have been used to be making like different types of perfumes or medicines, or maybe even melting different types of resins or wax or things like that to create sails for the boats or, you know, to coat different types of twine that they were making for, you know, anything that they were producing. So it was kind of like an all-purpose industrial vessel, but most commonly used for cooking, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it was a really a good pot that was used for, for heating up stuff. And do you have any examples of what some of the dishes might have been? We're really lucky in East Creek because we have excellent preservation with a lot of food in the site. And um, we have found in more than one occasion, we found a cooking pot that has lentils, like brown lentils in the bottom or like halos of the brown lentils that were burnt or like had eroded out over time. We even have like one cooking pot with like the bones of two wild hare in them. So we know that they were at least like hunting or trapping animals as well as farming and hunting and fishing. Those are like actual food remains that we found in the pot. At another site called Popa de Ocumbos, where I worked with one of the directors named Crisa Sophia New. She was um, excavating and found actual shellfish called uh, limpets or petalitas inside one of the cooking pots. And so they were making kind of a seafood soup. So so you find the actual food remains sometimes in the vessel, but, but it's rare. I mean, it's not common. I don't want to give, you know, a misrepresentation of like a Pompeii-esque kind of vision, <laughs> but you can find them. And we're talking, what, like 2,000-year-old vessels or something like that? Two to three thousand years old. I'm just so amazed by that. I mean, I know that that is precisely what it means to be an archaeologist, but still hearing that, especially just given the age of it, I mean, talking millennia, it really blows my mind, both the integrity of the clay and then the fact that the contents are still able to give us so much information. I mean, it's super exciting. And when I'm working with my colleagues who study the actual bones and the seeds and the shell, and they can look at like a crushed grape seed under the microscope and say, yep, this grape seed has the look of a seed that was crushed most likely for wine. They're like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. I mean, that to me is like, is just super exciting so to be cool. able to look at the actual preservation of the food in me and have an idea of how people, you know, performed with that particular food product to see what they were what they were doing with it. Yeah, it's so cool. We'll never get old. How much of these traditions, these culinary traditions that are rooted in clay pot cooking, how many of them have been retained just from what you observe in your time there? Oh, I think that's gosh, that's a really interesting question. It's I think that there's multiple traditions going on simultaneously with food here in the Aegean. So first of all, you have clay pot cooking, which is slow cooking either in an oven 
or like open air cooking. So the Minoans did not have ovens that we recognize like they do today. Today they would cook in a casserole, particularly like a casserole type cook pot, particularly like a chickpea type of soup or big or like lamb or something like that that they would do a lot a lot of slow cooking in. So that's like the ceramic kind of cooking they do today. They also have a thing with grilling, lots and lots and lots and lots of food that's grilled. And, you know, we believe that the Minoans were also grilling. People in the Bronze Age also grilled a lot of food. Mm. So you have those two types of traditions. And then, of course, I believe 100% that they practiced food preservation when it came to using the sun or salt, brine, and the sun. You know, and they do those as well today, depending on the time of the year or where you are. And so, you know, I, th- I think that those three types of traditions are still pretty strong. It's just that they, you know, they do them in a slightly different way with slightly different food products. Mm-hmm. How would the grilling, do you have any idea how that would have been set up over open flames? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I think here when I've been out with people sometimes and they, they want to grill to me, you know, you'll either have like your wire mesh grill that you just kind of pull out and do and you set it between two rocks, or you can also take like a big stick, like a limb off a tree, you know, and you clean it, and it's fresh, and so it's not dry, and then they just put the meat through that, and it stays just just fine. It doesn't, I think there's a lot of things in the archaeological record that we just won't see, we just don't recover because they're made out of organic pieces. And so I think I'm always fortunate that I like ceramics because the majority of stuff we, we find are ceramic, is ceramic trash. Really, and I think, you know, it's inorganic, and and for the most part, if it's there, it's going to be there, except for some extreme situations. And so, if it's made out of leather or wood, or other, you know, other sorts of materials, it just won't stay. Mm-hmm. Have you found any non-clay materials, tools, or weapons, or anything like that that have given you some insight to go along with what? your research has shown you in uh, studying the clay? You know, sometimes what you'll find, which I really like, is in the clay you'll see impressions, like weavings of baskets or weavings of cloth. And oftentimes I think about that as like a secondary kind of lining Mm -hmm. that they could have used, particularly when you're making a particular kind of vessel. We have this one very complicated vessel. It's complicated because it's super thin and yet at the same time large. And it's about the size of a large sea turtle shell, and it's basically that shape inside. And it's also extremely thin, and it's, and it's mold-made, and it's quite difficult. Nobody's really been able to figure out how to produce it. And so if you look on the underside of that vessel, it's very, you can see impressions of some sort of material. But And oftentimes you're, off, you're looking at kind of like the negative space of something, you know, embedded in the clay that can kind of help you. Other than that, you can you can find the odd stone tool, you know, like a pivot stone that will go along with a potter's wheel to try to understand the mechanics of how a potter's wheel could have worked and how you could have put that together, mm-hmm. which is kind of, you know, which is very exciting to try to understand. And, you know, and sometimes they'll have like obsidian blades, you know, which obviously they could have used as some sort of splicing tool. Yeah, you know, things like that, you know, it's, it's nothing's really isolated in the world when you're making anything, all the different types of tools you pull out to use. I always try to approach my problems in that way to see, like, what am I doing? And then look back at the archaeological material and say, okay, this is what do I have? What's missing? And then can I get to that, you know, from point A to point B and like what's in between? Okay, my last question for you is kind of an obvious one, perhaps, but one I don't know the answer to, which is how do you know where to go look? <laughs> well, uh, that is a very good question, I think, actually, because it's not so obvious. I think when you're looking for new sites, it's incredibly hard. And a lot of archaeologists, you know, they might grapple with this. For me, I'm very lucky because I'm extremely fortunate in the sense that I work on a site that has a very long history. And so our site was first excavated in, like, 1908. <laughs> so oh. so I, the site's been there much longer than the team that I'm working with has, has been there. But, you know, there's things about that. You know, when the first ex came, Richard Seeker, and he was working at Mokloth, 
he was excavating certain points, you know. And then since then, several other excavators have come. And then this next wave with Professor Souls and, and Coach G. Savaris, they kind of understand the landscape. And you can kind of actually see, I, I guess it's looking at pattern recognition in the landscape. It's like mm-hmm. once you tune your eyes to know, and then when it doesn't look like that, what's underneath, <laughs> you can kind of go, ah, that looks like some buildings there. Or, you know, these these stones in the road, there's four lined up in a straight line. Oh, that's probably a wall. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> things that are natural that are lined up in an unnatural way, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's actually a really good answer. And it's kind of what is true in so many parts of life, right? You You need to pay attention and recognize patterns and learn from the patterns and apply what you've yes. learned uh, to make informed choices. So, yeah. Well, that's excellent. That's right. <laughs> oh, it makes sense to me. I am super inspired after talking to you. I think you have just the coolest gig ever, a culinary archaeologist, and have really given me a new appreciation for clay pottery. And I already had a deep appreciation, but a newfound appreciation. So thank you so much for joining us and for sharing all of your, your knowledge well, with thank, us. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. It's a big pleasure to always talk to you. And um, I look forward, forward to you coming here. Yes, soon, soon. You've inspired me, as I said. So it won't be long. <laughs> I'll be hitting you up. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Sherilyn. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Ciao. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, uh, this is Stephen calling from Whetstone Magazine. Hi, Stephen. This is Malpa. How are you? Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. Thank you for your call. Oh, of course. Thanks for taking the time. I'm really appreciative. I am familiar with your work through your Donabe cookbook. Um, oh, that's good. Thank you. Yeah, which I bought a couple years ago and really, really enjoyed. So I'm happy to talk to you. 
Welcome back to Point of Origin. Our guest today is Naoko Takemore. She is author of the cookbook Donabe, and she's also the owner of Toro Kitchen, which is in Los Angeles. And we are so much looking forward to speaking with her today all about Donabe. Thank you so much for joining us, Naoko. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, us too. So I am really interested in earthenware cooking and clay pot cooking because it's it connects us to a really long and ancient tradition all over the world, many, many different mm-hmm. cultures. But for the Donabe in particular, it's a commentary on Japanese history. So I was hoping you could tell us about what the Donabe is and what its origins are. So Donabe literally means clay pot. Donabe's dog means clay and nabe means pot. Mm-hmm. Um, in Japan, back in the really ancient times, there's no written history, but it's said that it, it can be traced back to more than 10,000 years ago. But then continue to develop, and similar to like what we have now, that donade can go back to more than 1,300 years ago. And in the regions like Iga, that's kind of like a central of the Honshu, the main island of Japan. And donabe just uh, have been the very essential cooking tool for Japanese people's lives for many, many centuries. And the, the making of donabe, the quality of donabe all started to evolve and develop. And 2019, as of now, it's still one of the most important cooking vessels in Japanese culture. And it's, in fact, I would say it's like a national cookware for Japanese people. Wow. And how did you get into researching Donabe? So for me, because I was born and grew up in Japan, Donabe was like already there. And, you know, every household has at least one Donabe. So mm-hmm. as I grew up, my family always loved, you know, cooking and eating good food. So Donabe to me, in a in a good way, it was like a heir to me, you know. <laughs> it's, I never even thought of it. It was always there. And... And we always cook in it, and especially on weekend when we have dinner, all family together at home, uh, Donabe was there, and it was cooked and served right at the table, and everybody could participate. And when we get together with grandparents or the relatives, Donabe was always there too. Just uh, very natural, and also after I realized it was very important part of my life in terms of cooking and eating. But it wasn't after I moved to the United States, which was back in 2001. You know, Los Angeles is a very diverse city and with diverse culture. And Japanese food was already quite popular in L.A. Mm -hmm. And there are many Japanese restaurants and people, you know, sushi, tempura and, you know, other things. But I realized that Japanese home-cooked food were not very much known among people in L.A. or people in the U.S. And Donade was basically like almost unknown to American people. And I talked to different people, uh, my friends and, you know, other people, American people, and they also like, they feel a little bit intimidated by the idea of cooking Japanese food at home. So I thought like, oh, that's only because they don't know what Japanese home cooking is about. And to me, Donade really represents the Japanese home cooking and also the, essentially the Japanese culture of like communal dining and how we bond together. So I feel like as a Japanese living in the U.S., I thought it was my mission to kind of bring the wonderful Japanese food culture and introduce them to people in L.A. and beyond. So that's kind of how I started. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about dishes of your mm-hmm. early memories, are there certain kinds of donabe that are more closely aligned with specific dishes? The basic style donabe is essentially, you know, like a like a casserole, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a bowl and the lid, that's it. So that's what best known style of donabe. As I grew up, that's actually the only kind of donabe I was familiar with. And there are different sizes. Sometimes my mom pulled out like really large donabe when we have my grandparents visiting and so there's a big group of people. Or when I got sick and I took a day off from elementary school, my mom made like a porridge, like a very typical, like a, like a comfort healing food for Japanese people. And she pulled a tiny donabe for individual size and made a porridge. 
And then there are different producers, different regions of making donabe. And over the years, especially maybe like past few decades, those really like innovative-minded craftspeople, they started to kind of design different styles of donabe for different modes of cooking. And that's a great thing about the carrying the tradition. And for, I think, that of Japanese people, and especially those artisans, the definition of tradition is not just doing the same same thing over and over and over. But the tradition evolves, you know, according to the people's needs at the time. So there are different styles of donabe started to get developed, like a donabe designed specifically for cooking rice, perfect rice, and there's a donabe for steaming, donabe for smoking, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. now I would say like a very, very exciting time for the, the culture of donabe cooking. Yeah, which you yourself are helping to usher into homes all over the U.S. So thank you for (laughs) redefining our American food culture. Mm -hmm. So kind of on a more practical level, because mostly in the States, you know, we don't we're not accustomed to using clay pot cooking in our own homes. Mm -hmm. Hence, maybe why there was some intimidation for people what is the cooking application for donabe in one's home? I often tell people who are new to donabe that, you know, I, I understand uh, people could feel intimidated uh, if you've never cooked in donabe. So I always tell them that donabe is really just a cooking pot, but it's an amazing cooking pot. Mm-hmm. So, so you can just think of anything you would like to cook in a pot, and then you can cook it in donabe, you know. But why donabe is special is the most authentic donabe. It's made of 100% clay. And the, the ones I introduced from Japan uh, is come from the region called Iga in Japan. And the entire region of Iga used to be bed of Lake Biwa about 4 million years ago. So that was like a prehistoric era. So the, the donabe from the region is made entirely of the clay from the region. So the clay contains a lot of fossilized microorganisms from the prehistoric era. And so once you you know shape the donabe and then fire it, the body becomes really porous because those you know uh, fossilized microorganisms they become like creates the kind of negative tiny negative spaces. And so that's really the key to the kind of like a magic you know uh, donabe creates. So the porous body of donabe actually makes the body really strong and durable. And it takes longer time uh, for the heat to build. But once the heat is built, donabe stays hot for a long, long time. And after you turn off the heat, it stays hot for a long time too. So back in the old times, you know, centuries ago, people somehow knew like donabe makes the food taste better. And, but people didn't really know why. But now there are, you know, all the scientific studies and there are proofs that why donabe makes food taste better. It's really because of this porous body and the slow process of building the heat and then slow process of cooling down. And so that gradual temperature change actually is essential for the, you know, so-called umani flavors to mm. develop and all the different flavors kind of get integrated together. So that's why donabe is especially great for soup stew, uh, braising too. And, and donabe is oven safe. So I often do like a, you know, like a slow cooking, like a chunk of meat, you know, like a pork belly, mm-hmm. or I cook, uh, you know, like a kind of like a baked beans style dish. And uh, sometimes I put the donabe in the oven for like seven or eight hours and I don't have to do anything in a meanwhile. And, and Donabe does all the work for you. Wow, sold on that. That is <laughs> that is an awesome description. So the porous clay that you're mentioning, mm-hmm. which has this history tied back to millions of years ago, if you were to source clay from a different prefecture or somewhere else in Japan, mm-hmm. would that alter the profile of the Donabe? And if, is that something that is happening? It could. So the clay from Iga is arguably considered as the you know best clay for for the pot uh, in the world, and and there are clays from other regions, and also they're much inexpensive, kind of like a mass-produced donabe, mm-hmm. uh, which contains you know 
different materials inside too. So I, I've never tried them like side by side. But to me, like when I use Onabe uh, from Iga, it's just, yeah, I, I just feel, oh, this is it. <laughs> That's you <know>? the place. <laughs> yeah. And um, you have a retail store in Los Angeles as well. Yes. Toro Kitchen where mm-hmm. you are selling the Donabe, but you also have other wares too. So so now I think we have more than 500 different items, including kitchen tools, tableware, and some of the pantry, you know, like food items. And so it's really like, it's our mission to spread the wonderful Japanese food culture to people outside of Japan. And I, I like to call it like happy Donabe life. It's not, necessarily always about like you have to cook everything in Donabe but it's really the spirit of the Donabe cooking so which is like you enjoy cooking and dining and involving people and creates the more communication with people and also make your life more fulfilled and easier too easier in uh, cooking because the Donabe is often like cooked and served right out of it so the cleaning is really easy uh, and then we have other like cooking tools and uh, tableware the things and uh, from all over Japan and they are all made by different artisans so each product even like a tiny spoon has its own story so it's really like uh, I, I want to tell people like who makes it why it's special none of the products we introduce are you know there only because it looks pretty, you know. We introduce those items because we love them so much and we want to like bring the stories to people. And we're hoping that people who buy them, they enjoy them for a long time. And once you have like such nice items and with the stories, the way you appreciate cooking and dining really change. Even when you were just preparing just a, you know, like a bowl of yogurt and granola or the the feast with family and friends, I want to make it even a little bit more meaningful. So that's our kind of mission through our products. Mm, So beautiful. And it's really true what you say. I am thinking of many meals that I've had in clay that have a completely different flavor profile just because of mm-hmm. the, the vessel in which it was being served. So if we want to live the happy Donabe life, which I love mm-hmm. and I certainly aspire to do, is the best way for people to bring Donabe into their lives? Just go on your mm-hmm. website and order what, maybe one of the classic vessels? Mm-hmm. Would that be a good place for someone to start? Yes, definitely. And also, if you already have like a specific purposes you want to really like do for Donabe cooking, for example, like if you really want something great for cooking premium quality rice, you know, you can start with the Donabe rice cooker. And of course, you know, that doesn't mean that you can only cook rice in the Donabe. Um, any Donabe, you know, with the specific purposes can be used for, you know, other purposes so it, it depends but uh, yeah classic style donabe is to me like the really the must have item you know in your life and then makes your life much easier and more fun and and more fulfilling definitely and what is your go-to rice recipe when you're cooking in the donabe i must say plain rice mm-hmm. <laughs> that's always to me the best and i cook rice almost every single day and sometimes twice a day. And I use the same Donabe rice cooker for, I guess, almost 15 years. You know, you can see the really shiny grains of rice and then you smell the really natural, beautiful aroma, you know, slightly sweet aroma. So the plain rice to me is my, you know, go-to. Well, I'm really, really grateful that you've spent the time schooling us on all things Donabe and your Donabe cookbook is amazing, a must-read. And for those of us in Los Angeles, we can visit you in person, and the rest of us will have to order the classic online. Thank you so much for joining us today on Point of Origin. Thank you so much, Steven. It was my pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Noako. Have a good day. Cheers.
that's it for this episode. Point of Origin is a podcast from iHeartMedia and Whetstone Magazine, executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis and hosted by me, Stephen Satterfield. Special thanks to Kat Hong for editing, supervising producer Gabrielle Collins, and a very special thanks to my business partner, Whetstone co-founder Melissa Shi, who helped produce this podcast. Thanks, Mel. And thanks to all of you for supporting Whetstone and listening to the Point of Origin podcast. For all of the latest on all things Point of Origin, you can follow us on Instagram at Whetstone Magazine or online at whetstonemagazine.com. We'll see you next week at the Point of Origin. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.